Steve Lance, your host of the Capitol Report on NTD News. If you have not done so yet, please hit that subscribe button to stay up to date with all of the latest news coming out of the nation's capital and beyond. One of President Biden's key objectives on his trip to Saudi Arabia was to bring Saudi Arabia and Israel together to combat the Iran threat. To evaluate the success of his plan, Director of Iranian Americans for Liberty, Brian Lieb, joins us to discuss. Brian, coming off of Biden's trip to the Middle East, uh, we have Iran making some pretty bold statements saying they're capable of making a nuclear weapon. Uh, is this bluster or should this be taken at face value? I mean, I think it should definitely be taken at face value. Uh, we know for a fact that they have been enriching uranium at historic levels uh, since President Biden took office. And uh, I think it's uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 to 70 percent now in terms of their enrichment levels. So 100 percent, we should take it seriously. This is a country uh, that for over 40 years, Steve, has been chanting for the demise of America and our strongest ally in the Middle East, Israel. And they also have been taking tangible steps to back up uh, those threats that they've been making for, for decades now. So, yes, 100 percent, we need to take them seriously. Now, Brian, it, it appears that part of the trip uh, to the Middle East was aimed to bring Saudi Arabia and Israel closer together uh, to combat the Iran threat. Uh, what does a more united Israel and Saudi Arabia look like? And do you think uh, that this was achieved? Well, I don't think it was achieved due to anything that President Biden or his administration did. But I do think that the Saudis and the Israelis have been growing closer together for many years now. Uh, it was announced last week that the Saudis would start allowing all Israeli commercial uh, flights to use Saudi airspace, airspace, which I think is a win for everyone. Um, and uh, again, these countries have been, their ties have been warming over the years, similar to how you saw Israel make the historic peace deals uh, with Bahrain, Morocco, the UAE, and other countries. I think the Saudis very much want to be part of that uh, part of that clique. Uh, and yes, you are right, Steve. There is one thing that unites all of them, and that is the nuclear threat from Iran. So, Brian, how has the Biden policy on Iran, uh, when it comes to Iran, differed from, say, the Trump administration? Well, I think that can be summed up in, in one word, and that would be appeasement. Uh, President Biden and his administration have done everything that they can to appease the Mullahs in Tehran uh, since they took office, whether that has been through soft language and dealing with them, it has been lifting sanctions of Iranian-affiliated uh, companies here in America. Uh, and most importantly, Steve, it has been the Biden administration's decision not to enforce existing sanctions that are on the books uh, that would prohibit the Chinese government from purchasing crude oil from the Iranians. So that's translated into over a billion dollars a month that has gone uh, into the uh, Iranian coffers. Um, and at the very end of the uh, President Trump's presidency, they had around $4 billion in international reserves, uh, the Mullahs in Tehran. Uh, and today it's reported that they have now over $30 billion in international reserves. So it's very clear to see, uh, I think to anyone that's looking at it, President Biden has been all about appeasing the Mullahs. President Trump was all about strength uh, projecting strength uh, onto the world's leading sponsor of terrorism. Brian, if I could, what, what are your thoughts on the Iran nuclear deal uh, 2.0? Well, I think it was any kind of diplomacy with the world's leading sponsor of terrorism, Steve, was destined to fail from day one. That's what's going to happen again. I've lost track of what round we're in now in terms of negotiations. But there was uh, some talks uh, a week or two ago in Doha uh, and again, uh, that left uh, all parties with no deal. Uh, so I honestly don't think that the Iranian regime has ever wanted to do a deal with 
uh, the United States of America. I think they did a deal last summer with China uh, that uh, translates into $400 billion in economic investment over the next 25 years. Uh, and I believe just this week, uh, uh, the um, uh, president of Russia, Vladimir Putin, will be landing in Tehran for his first official visit uh, to Iran in many, many years, and I'm sure they're going to be announcing a trade deal. So the bottom line is that I don't think Tehran needs the United States of America anymore, um, and they're doing, uh, you know, they're giving us a bunch of uh, song and dance, but I, there's not going to be any deal. The deal would have happened by now if there was going to be a deal. Brian Lieb, thank you. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Washington, D.C.'s Mayor Muriel Bowser, a Democrat, says illegal immigrants in the nation's capital are becoming a problem. Bowser appeared on CBS Face the Nation on Sunday. The mayor is criticizing Texas and Arizona governors for busing the illegal border crossers to the nation's capital. Well, this is a very significant issue. Um, we have for sure called on the federal government um, to work across state lines to prevent um, people from really being tricked uh, into getting on buses. Uh, we, we think they're largely asylum seekers uh, who are going to final destinations that are not Washington, D.C. Thousands of illegal immigrants have been sent to Washington, D.C. from Texas and Arizona since April of this year. According to the mayor, most have final destinations elsewhere around the country. Some stranded in D.C. are saying that they're not able to get the transportation they say they were promised. A spokesperson for Arizona Governor Doug Ducey said if anyone is being misled, they want to know about it. And a Department of Homeland Security spokesperson told the Epoch Times that the department is carefully executing plans to manage and process and transport all non-citizens arriving at the border. After getting into America, illegal aliens still face a lot of uncertainty and many challenges, even the prospects of slave labor. I sat down with an active sheriff from Texas earlier, and he brings us the real situation based on firsthand experience. Sheriff Roy Boyd, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. What did the American people need to know that's actually happening down there? I think the first thing that people need to understand is, number one, this is the fight against good and evil. We are facing uh, evil through the, the uh, organized crime of Mexican cartels, transnational criminal organizations that are, that are taking advantage of people, bringing them into this country, and then putting them into indentured servitude. This is not an immigration issue. This is a slave trade issue. How widespread is this? Well, uh, it's all the way across the board. It's all the way throughout the United States. If people in America believe that this just impacts us down along the border, then they're fooling themselves. Because once these individuals come into Texas, they get distributed all throughout the United States of America. The cartel has a presence in every major city in the United States. Could you kind of just break it down as to how the slave trade works, how these people like wind up being slaves, as you call them, in, in this moment in time? So I'll kind of condense it for, the, for uh, time. But what we have is we have individuals who are coming up to the border through an agreement with the cartels to engage in the illegal activity of, of sneaking into the United States of America. Most of these individuals believe that they have paid their debt once they get to the, the border of Texas. However, once they cross the Rio Grande and the cartel gets them to Houston, which is the distribution center for illegal aliens in our region, they're then told that they owe more money, whether it be $3,000, 5000 or $10,000. And they have to work that debt off. At that point, 
they're placed into indentured servitude and they're slaves right here in the United States of America. I've actually found a letter from a slave at a sex ha a slave house that we uncovered in a search warrant in Rockport, Texas that articulates that it takes eight to 13 years to buy your freedom once you enter the United States. That is absolutely disgusting and should not be happening today. What is the feeling like when you guys actually do uncover certain things like this, um, when you're able to essentially liberate and save some of these uh, people that are being trafficked? You know, it, it's good whenever you're able to find somebody who's getting ready to be put in an extremely bad situation and free them from that. But what you hope is you hope that they don't wind up falling back into that. Because I'll give you an example. We found three girls that were classified as specials by the cartel. They were moving them to Houston. They thought they were going to get reunited with their family members, but in reality, they were going to be placed into sex slavery in Chinatown in Houston. Once we uncovered that, and then we went through the process and we turned them over to Border Patrol. What our hope is, is that those individuals don't wind up getting sent back to the cartels again right at the port of entry and then being smuggled again with another amount of money put on them. You know, well, first off, we don't enforce immigration law. At the local level, we're law enforcement. State and local do not enforce immigration law. Immigration law is federal. We enforce criminal law. Part of that is outside of our hands. But as we do that, we come across these, these situations. And what we want to do is we want to help individuals. So what we've taken is we've actually changed our model. We file local charges on everybody that we catch. And as we sit down and visit with these people and they tell us their stories and the hardship of them getting here and how the cartel puts you know, 10 of them in a room and feeds them one can of sardines every 24 hours or might not even come back and feed them for seven days while they're waiting for the next leg of their shipment. You, you have compassion for these individuals and you don't want them to have that happen again. So those individuals who cooperate, we're willing to work with them and work with our federal partners as they can and we try to get them into a better situation. Sheriff, you seem to be a, a student of history. We had a nice discussion before the interview started about history, uh, specifically in Mexico. How would you say that open borders could potentially uh, open up the doors to communism or socialism in this country? Well, the first thing you need to understand is that Mexico is a failed communist narco state. That's what it is. We don't call it that as a, our federal government doesn't because there's certain legal obligations that I've been told we have if we did that publicly. But it is. Government of Mexico and the cartels have merged. They have come together to work in a partnership. The cartels openly complain that their number one expense is paying off the corrupt Mexican government. But that communism is spreading into our country. This is a transition uh, into the United States to create an environment for Marxism to thrive. And that's exactly what's being done because what we're doing is we're overrunning our culture at a fast rate and we're, we're outpacing it with, with different cultures. And while we're doing that, the enemies of the United States are moving their people through that porous border and making us more and more susceptible to the communist way of life. Sheriff Floyd, thank you. Thank you. God bless you. I just want to thank everybody for listening to this episode. If you enjoy our content, please leave us a rating and a review as it really goes a long way in helping us spread the truth. Until next time, I'm your host, Steve Lance at NTD, and we'll see you soon.